As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. If you own real estate, you likely have a mortgage. If you're considering a divorce, you may be wondering how real estate assets and liabilities get divided in a divorce. My guest here today is an expert in residential lending. And in fact, John Snell is one of the first individuals to be licensed as a certified divorce lending specialist. He's here today to talk with us about how real estate can be used to help negotiate a win-win in a divorce. John, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jennifer, for having me. I, I love your podcast. You guys do such a great job. And I'm honored that you asked me to be here with you today. Well, thank you. You know, one of the biggest questions that people have when they're coming into the divorce process is trying to imagine what happens to the mortgage that my name's on? What do we do with the real estate? Do I have to sell it? Can I keep it? And so I just wanted to sit down with you and kind of talk with you about what, um, what you've seen in your experience and what options people have. So I think maybe one of the first things we need to like just start off talking about is um, how you got into this. What, what, what was your road to helping people um, with mortgages? So I entered into the mortgage profession through a corporate layoff, actually, back in 1993. I never would have chosen it, but somehow I, I uh, uh, was talked into it and found that I really loved helping people with their mortgages. Um, the, the divorce niche came later, but not a whole lot later. I noticed that so many people that would come to me after divorce had uh, just scars, financial scars, um, not to mention emotional scars, but, <laughs> um, and it made it hard a lot of times for them to qualify for that next mortgage. And so, um, I was kind of tucked that back in the back of my head, but actually starting to get proactive about it happened when I met a gentleman by the name of Hal Davis. I don't know if you knew him, remembered him, but he was an attorney in Collin County and he had a concept called civilized divorce. This was 20 years ago, probably. And back at that point in time, our mortgage licensing was handled by the state of Texas and they had an exemption for attorneys. So you could get your mortgage license if you were an attorney, because you're so smart, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so Hal had this idea. I love the idea. It was a kind of, he wanted to have a one-stop shop where he would handle the divorce and he would also do the, the refinance that often comes with that when you're trying to take an ex's name off of the, the original loan or buy them out. And, but he needed a sponsor to, um, to a, a broker to sponsor him. So he was referred to me and I talked with him a little bit and I thought this is a win-win a for both of us. And um, the, the very first transaction we did, I had to do all the work. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I kind of went back to Hal. I said, listen, Hal, I know the commission split I gave you originally. Um, I'm changing the deal. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, I'm going to invert it. I'm going to keep the lion's share. I'm going to give you a good part of it. And, but I'm going to continue to do all the work. And he was, uh, very thankful, I think for that 
that uh, opportunity because he recognized with that very first transaction how much work there goes into getting a mortgage and processing it and packaging it and getting it closed. So that's how I sort of um, got into the divorce lending niche. Um, several years later, I became much more intentional about it and to the point where I go to uh, classes that the attorneys have, CLE classes. Um, I try and go to whatever seminars and luncheons and things like that that they had. And so I can learn your business, your side of it. So it makes me a, a much better lender in the divorce world. And um, and so I, I love it. It's my passion and um, love helping people get through the process. Well, that's great. And we are definitely going to talk about some of the ways that the home equity can really be used to help facilitate a, a settlement or an, a positive outcome. And also um, the things that people really need to pay attention to, because if it's done incorrectly, that divorce can be a scar that people mm -hmm. uh, have to live with for a very, very long time. Yeah. Let's let's back up and talk a little bit about some of um, the real estate financing basics. So uh, it is not at all uncommon when people come into my office that they say, hey, you know, we own this property. He had it before marriage or she had it before marriage. And then, you know, my, my spouse put my name on the deed and we pull up the records. And in fact, their names on the deed of trust. So can you help us understand what is the difference between a warranty deed versus a deed of trust. Okay, so there's really three major documents that happen in every transaction. There's You've talked about two of them, the deed, the warranty deed, the deed of trust, and then there's also the note. And so how, how they work, and then all the stuff you sign at closing is <laughs> All the papers, filler, the papers, the papers, but, the papers. But those yeah. are the three main documents. And um, so, the warranty deed, and there's several different types of deeds, but we'll just be generic. The warranty deed actually is the document that transfers title from one party to another. And so if your client said they were put on the deed, it would there would actually have to be a deed filed that added him or her to to the property and, and ownership. And when we talk about title, I mean, it seems pretty basic, but that's the ownership. That's, that's the what ownership. gives you the actual right as an owner of the property is if your name's on the Correct. warranty deed. Correct. And then the deed of trust is the document that secures the lien that gets put on the property, the borrowing. And so that's the bank's document that they use if they need to foreclose on you it spells out all the conditions, all the requirements that you as a borrower must meet in order to keep ownership of the property. So if you don't meet those requirements, <laughs> and as my title friends will say, if you don't pay, you don't stay. And so if you don't meet those requirements, then that's the document that the lender will use to foreclose on you. It's also the document if you at some point in the future pay that loan off, they will use that to release that lien. And okay. so, so those are the two primary documents. And then, then the, the note is your promise to pay that new debt that has been created. Okay. So, and so in, in the note, that's where we'll see the terms like the interest rate and the payment and how it gets paid out. Right? Correct. Correct. Um, so if your name is on the note, mm -hmm. uh, 
can you just simply take it off the note if the other partner, if the other, your spouse is going to keep the property after divorce? Despite what some people might say, the answer is probably no. And the reality is it, it used to be possible, but in the last 20 years or more, uh, probably more, um, all of the loans get packaged up and sold as a security on the secondary mortgage market. And so those investors who buy those loans or the package or buy a share would have expectations that your each, each loan in that package it meets a certain criteria. Now you try and take one of the borrowers that you use to qualify out of it, you just can't, they just can't do it. So uh, realistically, you would, only, only way to get your name off the loan is to either sell the property or refinance it. And that's really kind of where I come in. That's my specialty. Absolutely, and it's really important in the closing documents and the decree to make sure that that's spelled out. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, uh, there you can't after after it's all done, you can't force a, the other side to refinance or to sell it. Right. It's theirs, and your name's on it. Right. Now, if um, if I get a divorce and my spouse keeps the property and the mortgage was in both of their names. Um, is that going to is that going to hurt me down the road uh, if I go if I want to go get a mortgage? The fact that my name is on that mortgage. This comes up all the time. Um, I I remember giving a presentation once to a group of attorneys and and at the end of the presentation, the attorney actually one attorney actually came up to me and he's been practicing for thirty years and he said, John, I did not realize what you just told us. Um, I get calls from uh, mediations because the one party doesn't believe what they're being told. But the reality is if your uh, property and the debt get awarded to the other party, then that doesn't count against you when you need to go and buy your next property. There is one caveat to that and that is you're still obligated in the eyes of the lender, but if you don't make your payments, it will ruin both people's credit. So you gotta make sure your ex continues to make the mortgage payments, even though it won't count against you from qualifying on the next house. So assuming that they, that the, they stay current on the mortgage and are meeting all of their obligations, it shouldn't necessarily hurt you going forward to get another mortgage. It doesn't hurt you at all. Okay. Mm -mm. And that's really good to know. But but if they are delinquent in the mortgage, then, then you your your credit is going to go down in flames with theirs. One one mortgage late can cause your score to go down a hundred points. You know, it's quite possible. It depends on what your the rest of your credit looks like, but it's it's a huge hit to your credit. And often lenders will um, require you to wait a period of time before before you can qualify um, if you've had a late payment on your mortgage. Right, so I, it's always, I mean, I always think it's important to have some kind of recourse built in if, mm -hmm. they, if they end up defaulting on the note. Um, and that's your job. That's right, <laughs> that's, where, that's where it helps to have a lawyer who um, has some experience in this area. Mm -hmm. um, what is a deed of trust to secure assumption? Okay, so going back to the three documents I talked about before, those are typically used when you buy a home, refinance a home. Uh, 
you're going to have very similar documents in a divorce case. So you might see a deed of trust to secure assumption that allows the um, departing spouse to have some recourse against the spouse that's keeping the property. So, so like the situation we're just talking about mm -hmm. where the other, the other partner keeps the property and they're on the mortgage, but they're not refinancing it. So your name is still on the note. If they default on that, mm -hmm. uh, then you have some recourse. So that, that basically then allows you as the departing spouse to come back and in a sense foreclose on them, take the property back, take control of it. And then you, you have control of what happens to the, to the property. Unfortunately, by that time, you may be two, three payments late because of your ex, and then that really hurts your credit. But that is, that is really the recourse that you have as a departing spouse. Okay. Um, now, shifting gears a little bit and talking about the equity. So for a lot of families, the home is their biggest asset, and that's mm -hmm. where most of the value is in the estate. Um, how can that equity be used in a divorce to help kind of help maybe cash somebody out um, and get the deal done? So um, it's a it's a great asset to have and and the tools that that I I bring to the table to help get at that asset um, are, are through a refinance. And so um, as you develop your your um, division of the assets mm -hmm. and liabilities, that becomes part of it. And typically what, what I see, what I do is one spouse that wants to uh, keep the house has to pay the other spouse their share of the equity or whatever the agreed upon share is. Okay. And that can be done a, a few different ways. Um, but basically we do a, a mortgage that would allow that money to be freed up out of the equity of the home and pay it to the departing spouse. So I want to talk about the different ways that that gets accomplished, because this mm -hmm. is often something that can be really complicated and confusing to people. Yeah. And so let's kind of like boil down what those different options are. Okay. So uh, generally speaking, um, there's three different ways to do it. The first would be a home equity line of credit and the home equity lines of credit. That's a, uh, home equity loan in the state of Texas, typically they have lower costs. Um, but if you already have an underlying mortgage there, you're going to have to pay off that underlying mortgage with the, we call them HELOCs mm -hmm. with the HELOC. Um, and so the, they're not necessarily a good option in my opinion, unless you're just borrowing a, a fairly small amount your property's free and clear. I think that's a pretty good option for that. One of the reasons they're not great is that they are adjustable. And ah. if you're paying attention to what's happening in the economy now, uh, inflation is just going crazy. And you're going to start seeing these adjustable rates that are uh, home equity lines of credit just go up. So if you have a significant amount of money borrowed on a HELOC, it's, it's going to cost you a lot more going forward. That's really interesting. Um, so did I understand you cor correctly to say that you can't, you can't access a HELOC if you have an underlying mortgage or? 
Um, well, you can, okay. but the issue becomes part of the issue of refinancing is to remove the spouse from the loan. So you have to pay that loan off anyway. So you're not gonna be able to complete the refinance process to remove one of the partners. If you've I got mean, you, the you, mortgage and a HELOC. You, you could, but it's, it's just setting up a HELOC in and of itself. I don't think it's a great idea. The, yeah. And that kind of brings me to a second option, which would just be a straight uh, home equity loan. Fixed rate, uh, you pay off the existing mortgage, you then can pull cash out of the property, pay it to the X, and then that's to me a lot simpler, especially if you already have a mortgage on the property. Um, I think that's a, a way to do it. And is that called, a, that's a cash out refinance? It's, it's called a cash out refinance. Okay. Um, some people call it cash back, home equity loan. There's a few different terms out there that people use, but typically cash out refinance. And once you do a cash out refinance, is it possible in the future to take more cash out of the house if you need it? You you can do that in the future. Okay. Um, you have to wait at least 12 months after you've done your first refinance. The, the downside to a, a cash out refinance it's not necessarily a downside, but one factor is that the most you can borrow is 80% of the value. So if you pull all your cash out um, initially and you wait 12 months, want to do it again, you may not have the equity to to access much more than you've already taken out. So that's, a, that's an issue with um, home equity loans, cash out loans. The other thing about cash out loans that um, they tend to have a higher interest rate and higher closing costs than the third option. <laughs> this is you're, my favorite. <laughs> you're probably leading me to it, right? right. Uh, which is an OLT lien refinance. What did you just say? OLT, <laughs> I'm gonna spell it for you, O-W-E-L-T-Y. Um, I, whenever I ask clients if they've ever heard of that term, no. No. Nobody's <laughs> ever heard of it. And um, if you go look the, the word up in the dictionary, um, kind of the root of that word is equality. And the concept is to, to equalize an asset, divide it, partition it, you see that word in mm -hmm. your documentation, um, in a way that a, an asset typically can't be divided, like a piece of property. You can, you can divide bank accounts pretty easily, property is not. And so, that's where the concept of the OLTI lien comes in. And how that works is uh, through, through the divorce process, the settlement, uh, a new lien will be placed on the property, a second lien on the property. And so you'll have your existing mortgage with one of the banks, then you create a second mortgage on that property. And um, think of it like a pool lien or home improvement, it's the same thing, only the, um, the creditor or the benefactor for that uh, second lien, that OLTI lien, is going to be the uh, ex-spouse. And so that's that's how the buyout is able to be uh, taken care of. We create the lien and then I come back in and refinance it, pay off the current mortgage and then the OLTI lien, and then the spouse gets their, their buyout proceeds. The so OLTI liens are gonna be um, a little bit lower rate little bit lower fees. And so to me, it's a 
a better solution than the cash out. And um, so when we talk about like the benefits of the OLT, like you just said, lower interest, um, better terms. And I think the third thing that's really important is you're not capped, right? At that 80-20 loan to value ratio. You're correct, you're correct. So it depends on the type of mortgage that you do, but a conventional loan, you can go up to 95% of the value of the property. And on an FHA loan, you can go up to 97.75%, which that's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, VA is only 90%. So you would, I would never put somebody back into a VA type loan, but um, conventional. So, so the, if you're in a situation where you don't have that much equity in the property, you're going to be able to, to stretch the buyout a lot more with an old lien refinance than with a, a Texas cash out. Okay, that's great. So we've covered we've covered the idea of using a HELOC, the home equity line of credit. We've covered doing the cash out refi and the OLC lien. Now, I would think in the negotiation process, it'd be one thing you'd really want to know is whether whether the other party or whether you are going to be able to qualify mm -hmm. for refinancing. When is a good time to bring in an expert like yourself into the divorce process? Well, I, I always say as soon as possible. And so I have a lot of clients that I will meet with before they even file. But but certainly um, once they filed, they wanna keep the house, or even if they are, don't wanna keep the house, they wanna buy a new house uh, when the divorce is settled. Um, it's best to know where you stand uh, as soon as possible. So that way um, I have the opportunity to create that plan to make it happen for you, whether it's, um, uh, to refinance the house or uh, buy another house. So qualifying is, it, there's a lot of issues that come up potentially, credit, if I have time to help somebody clean their credit up, um, that helps to have more time to do that. Also, when you get to the point where you're trying to settle, um, it might make sense to look at child support, um, alimony, spousal maintenance, that kind of thing. And that can be structured to even uh, help that person qualify. So that's um, sort of the next uh, set of things I want to talk with you about, um, because we know this, when you talked about the scars of divorce, uh, you know, being able to qualify in the future for another mortgage is really important to people um, in recovering from divorce. What, what will a lender look at in terms of income and do, mm -hmm. what can we do to help people, you know, maximize, um, the settlement so that they can sure. qualify in the future. Sure. So um, there's several different sources of income that that uh, can be used for qualifying. And just because you receive that income doesn't mean that in our uh, world it's considered qualified income. So you kind of really have to take a, a look at what what you're receiving and is it qualified. So for example, uh, I met with a client last week actually it was i didn't meet we we talked i <laughs> uh, don't meet too much that anymore but um we talked and she told me um she's getting she's going to be getting twenty three hundred dollars a month child support um three thousand dollars a month for two years um spousal maintenance and then she has a had a part-time job for about a year um making about a thousand dollars a month so if you kind of add all that up, you've got like $6,500 or something like mm -hmm. that, $6,300 $6, of income. And then I had to 
painfully go through each one of those and tell her, well, part-time work, you have to have a two-year track record of it for it to qualify. So she's trying to, she's trying to get a full-time job, which is great. Um, secondly, the child support, how old are your kids? Well, one is 15 and one is 13. Well, sorry, but you can't get the 2300 because your, your child support typically ends when the child turns 18 or graduates from high school. So that, that income is probably not going to be acceptable. How to long the lender. do you have to, how long does that, the child support have to be paid? So to you have to, for it to cons be considered qualifying income, you have to have received it for six months and then it has to continue for three years, 36 months after the mortgage is closed. Okay. So when you see somebody that's 14, 15, um, that's gonna be an issue in using that for qualified income. I said, well, you can use the income that you'll receive for the second child because they're, they're gonna be under that three-year mark. So that dropped her income to about $1,800 on the child support. And then the spousal maintenance, sorry, you can't use that because it's only lasting for two years. So um, if if I were to have been brought in at the beginning of the case, and, and I, I was referred to her after mediation, the divorce decree is already in draft form. There's really no way to go back and change that. But I would have suggested maybe not receiving the uh, spousal maintenance $3,000 a month for two years. How about $1,500 a month for four years. And then it's the same amount of money, but it now stretches that time period out for the receipt of it. Now we can use it for qualifying income. So that's that's kind of an example of um, having the ability to brainstorm, uh, consult with somebody on the front end. But um, going back to your, your question about income, uh, so generally speaking, we wanna see a two-year track record of employment income for stay-at-home moms, a lot of times um, they've been out of the workforce for a while, but uh, they they need to be back in the workforce for six months. It needs to be full-time, W-2, can't be a, a <laughs> contractor or in that kind of thing, and can't be part-time. Uh, part-time's okay if you got two-year track record, but um, so that's, that's what we're looking for for employment income. Um, alimony, spousal maintenance, child support, pretty much the same guidelines. You have to have received it for six months and then must continue for three years after the, after the mortgage is closed. Okay, so um, that's really helpful. And I'm just thinking now <laughs> all the ways, you know, like many other lawyers, I think of you after the fact, but really to bring you in in the early part of the negotiations is really important. Um, you know, one thing that my clients are really worried about is the interest rates. That's such mm -hmm. a big part of the the mortgage. Um, what are factors that really impact the interest rates? And, you know, you don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, what do you... I do. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> do I didn't bring it, forward? but I have one at home. <laughs> so um, that's a, a question I get all the time. Where are interest rates going? And probably for the last decade, we have had all the major real estate economists every single year forecasting rates are going up, rates are going up, rates are going up, and they've been wrong all, <laughs> all throughout. I mean, I I just pretty much dismiss it, but um, there's really two different um, 
factors that come into play as far as interest rates go. There's the, the macro level factors and then there's the micro level factors. So um, on a macro basis, inflation is the, the evil enemy of low mortgage rates. So as we see inflation happen, you're gonna see mortgage rates go up. It's just a question of how, how fast. The Federal Reserve over the years has done a really good job of kind of keeping that in check and they, they have their uh, tools to, to make that happen. Recently, they made an announcement that they were going to stop purchasing as much, as many um, mortgage-backed securities and, and treasury notes, which um, that's a signal to the market that um, rates are gonna go up. And so the, the investors are starting to price that in accordingly. Um, other macro factors are um, every month we have reports that come out about employment, um, inflation type reports, that sort of thing. I always look at the monthly jobs report because that's telling me really the, the heartbeat of where the economy is going. If you see a strong economy, lots of jobs being created, you're going to see uh, workers who are, not, are now confident, more confident about going and looking at other opportunities to increase their income. And that's very inflationary in the economy. So, so the jobs report every month is a big, a big report I watch. The, another thing that we see right now and we've seen is geopolitical type factors. Um, you see uh, I, last week, I guess, when the, um, the new virus spiked, you saw the rates go back down because any that's bad news in in the world. People tend to move their money, the, the institutional investors move their money out of stocks into safer havens like the bond market. And so that's good for lower rates. Um, you see um, Russia looking at Ukraine again, you see China looking at Taiwan, those are things that create tension and, and fear in the markets. And so you'll, you may start to see the rates tempered and not rise up as fast uh, if something happens there. So that's geopolitical. And then on a micro level, your interest rate, my interest rate is determined by largely how good our credit is. And so that's a huge factor. And, and what are the, like, what are the credit numbers that kind of where things break down or what? And do those, you know, I, I now know like with every bank account, it says, get your credit score. Mm -hmm. Is the credit score I'm looking at uh, as a consumer, is that the same credit score that the lender's gonna be looking at? It is not. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I have this conversation almost with every yeah. client because everybody is monitoring their credit these days. You you have the opportunity, whether your your uh, credit was uh, hacked by some somebody previously and and the, the bureaus offer you a free credit monitoring or most of the credit cards now offer you a, a monitoring type service so everybody is monitoring their credit and so the the issue is there are probably 70 different credit scoring models so the one that you have access to which is a consumer model is different than say a model that would be used for auto loans or um, home insurance or even mortgages. So, so if when it comes time to look at getting a mortgage, 
the important number is to, to be what the lender's looking at. So, um, I, and I always tell people, it's great to have a credit monitoring service just to give you relative mm -hmm. numbers. But when it comes time to looking at getting qualified for a mortgage, you wanna have a lender uh, pull that credit for you so you know exactly what the scores are gonna look so like. So you don't, you can't, you don't really know what your score is until a lender pulls it. But then the lender pulling it can have a negative impact. So are there any ways to kind of, you know, know where you're going to stand? Well, that's not necessarily true. Okay. Um, that's a misconception that a lot of people have that if if I'm pulling your credit, your score is going to go down and everybody thinks it's going to be catastrophic. And the reality is one credit inquiry from a mortgage company or any inquiry really is only going to make a difference of a few points. And so if your credit is already really, really good, it, it would be totally insignificant. If your credit's really, really bad, it might be the, the difference between being at one threshold versus dropping down to the next threshold. And so um, I tell people, you want to know. Yeah. <laughs> don't be in fear. You, yeah. you, if you if you don't want anybody to pull your credit, you you really won't know. And then the other thing is that um, the the credit scoring companies anticipated this, and so for example, you could have your credit pulled an infinite number of times by mortgage companies within a thirty day period. And that only will count as one inquiry okay. against your credit. Same same thing with auto loans. So um, it's not good to go crazy with that and getting a bunch of new credit cards and all that. But but it really isn't as significant as people think it is uh, when it comes time to get a mortgage. Very good. This has been really helpful. As we kind of come to the end of our time, um, which has just been chock full with so much information and good advice. Uh, You've worked with a lot of families who've gone through the divorce process. And I would just like to know from your vantage point, your experience, what message of hope do you have for somebody who's facing divorce uh, and maybe going, you know, looking at uh, going through that process? Well, um, I'm sure you've gone through tough times. I have. Um, anybody who's been in the real estate business in 2008 knows what tough times are. Yeah. But one of the things that has always helped me through tough time is the old adage, this too shall pass. And I think a lot of people when they're going to, through divorce are just so focused on the situation they're in, they can't see it. Mm -hmm. This too shall pass. This is really painful, but it's only gonna be for a period of time and then I can move on. So th this too shall pass <laughs> is one thing I would say. Uh, another uh, quote I love is by the author Mitch Album, And he says that, all endings are also beginnings. We just don't know it at the time. And so if I could give anybody encouragement, it's this too shall pass. And now you have your opportunity for a new beginning. And um, if you focus on the positive, you're going to create a positive outcome. If you focus on the negative, you're going to get a negative outcome. But this is a chance to start over and um, create the life that you that you wish you had before. And, and so, um, and one other thing about that, um, Google divorce affirmations. Really? <laughs> There's some amazing information there that can help encourage people. That's so, great. Yeah. 
Well, you've given us some really good words to live by and um, and I think a, a strong message for people. Um, they need to know they have options and tapping into that home equity can be a great option mm -hmm. in divorce. If you want to learn more information about John Smell, we'll include a link to his website and we hope that you will look him up. And if you've enjoyed your podcast podcast today, we certainly hope you'll subscribe and we thank you for your time. Mm -hmm.